Blog Talk Radio. everyone. This is Marty Oakley of the PPJ Gazette Online, and this is the TS Radio Network. Tonight's show is Whistleblowers, and it's brought to you in coordination with Marcel Reed and the Whistleblower Summit taking place this year from July 29th through 31st, and it'll be online again because of this faked up virus thing, and hopefully we'll be back in town next year. We'll see. Um, our show tonight is, is with a man who's a, a Navy officer. His name's John Stremmel. And he's been going through a battle. We've, we've addressed so many of these cases, done so many of these shows. And quite frankly, tonight is our 1,611th show, 13 years worth. And, but it, it's, it's a twist on what we normally hear, where women are raped into court and basically run through the mill, but this time it's a father that's trying to protect his son who is possibly autistic. He's a small little boy and there seems to be some issues and some problems. He has tried to address much of it and gone through channels like he's supposed to. And a lot of what has happened is just really quite unbelievable. Um, John, I'm going to let you give everybody the background on your story and then we'll pick it up from there and everyone this is john stremmel our guest this evening go ahead john john's not talking <laughs> let's try this again <laughs> okay oh. are you there now yes sorry, can you hear me? <laughs> yes go ahead john all right um well First, I just wanted to say thank you so much for having me on the show, and thank you to Marcel Reed as, uh, for for hooking this up for us. Uh, first off, I just wanted to say I'm a I'm actually a petty officer. I'm not actually an officer, although I do appreciate the promotion, Marty. Um, and I am active duty. <laughs> yeah, I am active duty military, and I am here expressing my own opinions and. What I'm going to talk to you about will hopefully be really informative and helpful for anyone else who finds themselves in this type of situation. And my opinions are mine alone and don't necessarily reflect that of the U.S. military. Um, and I just want to say good evening to uh, everyone who's listening. Oh, thank you. Um, when I read through your story, the articles you sent me regarding your background on this, um, what concerned me, you talked about having go, gone to this family advocacy program, and they they were supposed to jump in behind you with the evidence you took them, weren't they? Yes. So the family advocacy program is an organization within the military. All the branches have it. And essentially, it is there for service members and their dependents to go to if there is domestic violence, if there's anger issues. Um, any anything like that where they 
they are supposed to uh, provide help for everyone. They also have shelters on base if you need a safe haven to hide uh, from a, a partner who is being abusive. However, uh, as well-intentioned as it is, it has become very clear over the last few decades that the family advocacy program is really a failed experiment and they've lost their way and they have a lot of untrained and employees who are just not held accountable for their actions. And so uh, what happened with me is I'm stationed at the Center for Surface Combat Systems Detachment in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. And I had a, I had my wife who was being abusive towards myself and my son. And I was at, at work and I was literally in the bathroom uh, crying, just trying to get through the day. And I had this wonderful woman who's a chief uh, petty officer who noticed me distraught and clearly something was up and she reached out and she didn't have to do this, but she reached out and said, are you okay? What's going on? And she was the first one I, I had told about, you know, what was, what was happening to me at home and, and what I was seeing my son go through as well um, at the hands of my partner. And she said, okay, let's go to the family advocacy program, which is, it's on base. Uh, it's, it's actually right outside the gate. So we went and uh, we had a, a woman caseworker uh, take us in and her name is BJ Corsi. And she uh, was extremely glib, dismissive, and did not take my complaint seriously. Uh, she actually kept looking at, you know, the chief saying, what's wrong? What's wrong? Um, because she assumed that, well, you're the woman, so you're probably coming to talk to us about domestic violence. And she said, no, it's actually, it's actually John who needs help. And... And she asked me to leave. She said, you know, we can't, there's nothing we can do for you. And, uh, sh you know, showed me the door. And my chief was like, I'm so sorry that that happened to you. There's no way that they would have talked to a woman like that. And so I, you know, I went back um, about my life just thinking, okay, well, they're not going to help me. So I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. But then, you know, the abuse got worse. I had found out later my wife was relapsing. She had, she has a history of alcohol and drug abuse as well as some violent uh, criminal charges against her. And it looks like she was, you know, doing back to doing drugs, back to drinking every day after she had uh, left, she had left our house, but she was still coming by breaking into the house, threatening to kill me. Uh, hurting our son, using using my son as a as a pawn, as a bargaining chip to try and get things out of a divorce, and I didn't know what to do with myself, and so I found myself again about three weeks later um, at the family advocacy program, and I said I don't want to speak with Miss Corsi, I'd like to speak to someone else. So they had me speak to another woman by the name of Jennifer Yannick, and. And that's when, that's the first time that they said, you know, we just don't, I, I don't know what you want from us. We don't help 
men the same way that we help women. And I, I just, I couldn't believe what I was hearing, um, that they would just be so brazen about it. And I said, can I use the shelter? And she said, oh, there is no shelter, which turned out to be a lie. There was a shelter. Later, she changed her story to, well, we, we have a shelter, but we don't allow men in the shelter. Oh. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was, um, it was really, it, it, it was such a difficult time. You know, if anyone's been in, a, in an abusive relationship um, and, and you're not getting any sleep and, you, you know, you have a very young child. My son was one when um, my wife walked out on us who can't sleep, who has these issues. I'm just trying to get through the day. And so I wasn't really right. I wasn't really like in a, in a, I didn't think, Oh, this is discrimination. I didn't think that I was, I was very apologetic. Like, Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. I bothered you. Sorry. I asked to use the shelter. Sorry. I'm a man. You know, I, I was just, just, I was just yeah. so deflated. And so, um, uh, long story short, I, I ended up going there five times and every time they, they turned me away, uh, they tried to use a different a reason each time, but the most, for the most part, they, they flat out said, we don't allow men in our shelters. We don't provide the same services for men. If you're an abuser, we can put you in our abuser classes. And I said, no, oh. that's not going to help. Um, <laughs> they only have classes, yeah. you know, for men when they're guilty. I see. Yeah. So, so and- I filed a uh, equal opportunity discrimination. Um, uh, you know, I, I I blew the whistle on them on their discriminatory practices. Right. And I actually hired an attorney and I filed uh, a suit against them, um, hoping that I could get around the Ferris doctrine. Are you familiar with the Ferris doctrine? Right. Yes. It, it was. Yes. Yeah, it was you want to, yeah, basically. You want to explain to the audience, yeah, what, sure, what the Ferris yeah. Doctrine is, because a lot of people don't know. Right, I didn't know about it either. So, um, it was it, it's a law that was passed in 1950 that essentially said service members are not allowed to sue the government while they're on active duty oh. for basically oh. anything at all, and it's a right that everyone has. Everyone, you can sue. Uh, any, if you're an adult in America, you can sue. Um, but for whatever right. reason, they they think that service members have it too good, I guess. And you know, the the military basically said we're gonna we're gonna police ourselves and we'll say if we're guilty or not. You know, yes. what could possibly <laughs> go, go wrong, right? Yes. We looked at yeah, ourselves so, and decided we weren't guilty. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, gee whiz. Um, <laughs> how nice of them. Uh, yeah, I mean, anyone yeah. given the opportunity to police themselves, you know, of course they're going to say, oh, we had, we did nothing wrong. They draw it out. There's really no timeline. There's no accountability for when it's when these investigations are screwed up. And we saw it recently with Vanessa Guillen, uh, the the young soldier who was murdered, she went to um, her chain of command and said that there was sexual harassment and they did their investigation and found absolutely nothing. And they didn't pay attention to her until her body was found and she was dead. 
But, you know, these investigators, oh there's this notion that they're these crackpot, you know, uh, war room team of highly trained, uh, you know, investigators with all these all this experience and tactics. And it's really not. That's not the case. Uh, for for mine, it was, right. you know, someone who had never been trained in doing an investigation. And so anyway, I, I, I blew the whistle on them. I filed my lawsuit. Two weeks later, they sent a letter to my chain of command and my wife saying that I was guilty of child abuse. Now, mind you, oh. I wasn't accused. I wasn't, I wasn't investigated. There was, there was no what's called an IDC, Incident Determination Committee. There was nothing. It right. was, this was flat-out retaliation. You're, you're going to tell me I, <laughs> I, I sue these guys, yeah. and then two weeks later, suddenly I'm guilty of child abuse. Anyway, it took them 311 days to send a letter from the Pentagon saying, we're so sorry, we made a mistake, oopsie doopsie, I guess you're not guilty. You know, meanwhile, during those 311 days, I was in, I was, I was devastated. I was looked at at my chain of command as if I was this child abuser. And then of course my, my wife and her attorney, they're waving that letter around in court and they gave it to the custody evaluator. And I had full custody. Child welfare services had given me full custody temporarily and you know, that, that letter was used against me to, to take away that, that full custody. And so I, I, when I did try to sue, the fairies doctrine prohibited me from doing so. And that's when I decided to start doing, you know, whistleblower type uh, advocacy. And, and I, you know, got involved with the whistleblowers of America. And, Mm -hmm. you know, during that, during that time, um, and and to this day, you know, I've been retaliated against for for speaking out. Well, John, you know, this I hear this all the time from whistleblowers. You do the right thing. You follow the chain of command. They can say or do anything they want. Nobody's responsible. And the worst part of it, what really torques me, is the public is paying for all of this, even the retaliation. The public is footing the bill on it. And so whatever right. they've done to you, there was a monetary cost attached to it that we have to pay. They don't. They're never held accountable. You're absolutely right. Uh, but when you went from – when you finally got to this IDC, this in, Incident Determination Committee, the Family Advocacy Project did not give them all that they had on this, did they? They just selected and kept a lot of information from them. That's right. Yeah, that's a really good question. So the – Incident Determination Committee is a very unconstitutional, essentially a kangaroo court, in which one person Surprise. goes goes yep. yeah goes to a they go into a room with um, about five voting members, and they present the evidence, but they don't call it evidence; they call it information, and they do an mm-hmm. up or down vote on whether or not somebody was guilty of domestic violence, which is a crime. So they're essentially a jury deciding if someone is guilty of a crime. However, there's no attorneys. I can't be there. My wife can't even be there to defend herself. Um, The person who brings all the evidence is the caseworker. And so in my 
situation, it was a woman by the name of Don Ogden who has a history of lying to Congress and who who fostered this anti-male uh, discriminatory culture at the Family Advocacy Program. Uh, the, the reason I know that is because employees have come forward since then talking about how Miss um, Ogden would 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 have her caseworkers have to come to her for everything. Um, I actually oh. have an audio recording of of someone saying that she was an she's an abusive boss, and so 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 here's here's what's wrong with that with that incident determination committee. I showed them pictures of my wife choking my son. Video actually. Uh, Bruises on his back. The nanny was a witness to the abuse. His doctor was a witness. His, his spin, excuse me, his um, his special needs um, attendant from the Department of Health. Yes. There was a child welfare service report that showed that I was the sole safe and protective parent. All of that was ignored. None of that was brought into the room. And why is that? Well, they had initially told me that there's nothing they can do to help me. I'm a man. I need to go somewhere else, which I did. I ended up, you know, sleeping on the beach. I slept in empty apartments, homeless shelters. Again, I'm active duty military. I own a house, but I didn't feel safe in my house. And they were supposed to let me in their shelter, you know, Uh and, and there was no, by the way, there was no one else in the shelter. An investigation found that there was no one. So, you know, even if they're even if they're saying, well, if there's a woman in there, it might by seeing a man, it might trigger yeah. something. You know, I get that, I understand that, but the point is, later we found out there was no one in there, and even if there was someone in there, they have protocol. They get 190 million dollars annually, and they they pay for oh, hotel wow. rooms, and they never paid they never paid for a hotel, they never even offered. And so there's a there's a law uh, called Talia's Law. Um, which actually came out of Hawaii because the family advocacy program screwed up and allowed a little girl named Talia Williams to die. And so this law is actually named because of family advocacy programs, uh, criminal negligence. And yet here we are, uh, this, this, everything I'm talking about, by the way, happened in 2018, 2019. And so just two years later, they're, they're, they're breaking Talia's law. Talia's law it says that if a federal uh, employee on a military base gets a report of child abuse, they are mandated to do two things. One is contact the service member's chain of command, which they never did. I went in five times. They had no idea if I was – I could have been lying to them. I could have been the one abusing my yeah. son, right? They have to call my yes. chain of command. They didn't. They didn't call him. Number two, they have to call either child welfare services or the police, and they did neither. So fast forward to this incident determination committee. If they had found my wife guilty of what she had done, then they would have been guilty of violating Talia's law for sure. So it was in their okay. selfish interest to find her innocent and to say there's nothing to see here, sweep it under the rug. They literally hid evidence, uh, Don Ogden and, and Jennifer Yannick, They withheld evidence, and then they actually lied about who they talked to because they tried to do whatever they could to to cover up the fact that they they did not properly report uh, this child abuse. And then I actually got a signed affidavit from a master chief who was in the room when Don Ogden was pitching 
pitching the case to the voting members, he signed an affidavit saying that, that she was blue in the face defending all women, and at no point did she bring up me or my son. I, I don't understand oh, how wow. you have an incident determination committee where you don't yeah. bring up the victims, right? So John, really let me ask you this. Because, are these, you know, yeah, these women, are these women that you're talking about, are they service members also? No, they're civilian uh, employees. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah. And so they, they were and, named in my, in my uh, whistleblower report. Okay. And my and my right. uh, EO report as well. Okay. So it just you know this the idea that you would be turned away from a shelter uh, for any reason you know when women can go and this is you know there's a great amount of disparity in this issue across the country whether it's in the military or out um, but it just seems to me especially since you're an active service member. The military would have jumped in behind you, you know, and at least made sure there was an adequate investigation done to make sure that, you know, everything was taken care of. And yet they don't seem to be present at all. You're, you're absolutely right. Yeah, there there is a bias towards service members uh, in the family advocacy program. One of the okay. contractors at my at my office said. Uh, at the family advocacy program, the male service member is the big bad wolf. And no matter what you say or do or what evidence you give them, you're the bad guy. So even though I was going in there showing evidence that I was actually a victim and my son was a victim, uh, there's, there's, I, was, I really lost the battle before I even walked into the room. And yeah. it wasn't until I filed yeah. some FOIA requests, some Freedom of Information Act requests, mm-hmm. where I saw – you know, who the voting members were and how it all went down in the timeline and saw that, like, wow, they just flat out hid evidence to show that she was innocent. Just to do, and and none of the voting members, they don't know. They don't know what was left out. They have to, they had to rely on Don Ogden, um, who, who, you know, she just, she just left stuff out. She is the orchestrator. She is the threshold guardian as to what goes into this room. And, you know, if her philosophy is that men are always, always bad and they can't be victims, then, you know, of course, she's going to protect her own job and her and her own office and the reputation there by saying that, you know, yes. I was bad. And by the by the way, yeah, um, after the IDC, um, I, I, I filed an appeal and within five minutes, um, they called my chain of command and said that I had mental problems and that they they shouldn't be listening oh to me. Oh my gosh. Isn't that isn't that oh a, my, a who nice did, coincidence? Who made that call? Who, yeah, who made that, that was, call? Um, uh, I believe that was Jennifer Yannick who called my master chief because then I got a call from my senior chief saying, Hey, why am I getting a call from the family advocacy program saying you got mental problems? And I was just like, Jimmy. Oh boy. They're not doctors. They're they're not mental health no. professionals. Um, exactly. oh, and then, they got, and then there was a follow-up. Yeah. Yeah. There yeah. Was, I found an email in the FOIA request where they said, you know, I'm I'm deeply concerned with his mental state now that he's now that he's say, uh, appealing our our decision. You know, I've been talking to them for about eight to ten months or so, and uh-huh. you know, I have all their notes that say, you know, this service member is is smart. 
He is cognizant of what's going on. No mental health concerns with this guy. Um, and then, you know, five minutes after I say, you know, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to, I'm, I'm going to have to appeal this because I don't think you guys looked at all the evidence, you know, then, then they got extremely defensive and, and tried to um, smear my name, which again, yeah. going back to that fairies doctrine, uh, you cannot sue for defamation of character. You can't sue for libel. You can't sue for slander. So there is nothing stopping legally. There's nothing stopping, uh, you know, military leaders from calling me a child abuser, for example. There's nothing or saying well, I have mental problems John, with, you know, zero evidence. Yeah. Do you, do you know why you can't sue? If you go back and look at the contract you signed when you enlisted um, you were expatriated, and you will remain expatriated until your contract is up or you're out of the military, and then you become a civilian again, and then you regain all your citizen rights, whatever you want to call it. And so the other little part of that, too, is the the term GIs came from World War II and World War I, government-issued property. You are considered property. You are not considered yeah. a human being. Uh, I dealt with two or three cases on this. I was absolutely stunned when I realized what they were actually saying. There, you're a non-entity. You're no different than a tank or a truck. That's all you are. And, um, uh, but that's why you can't sue, because if you right. were able to sue, this would all be exposed that you had lost your citizenship. You know that you had lost all your constitutional rights and force you into a tribunal. Uh, I mean, this is complex, but there is a reason why they do these things. And one man that I had talked to said to me, he said, when you realize what you have done to yourself by signing up to go into service, he said, nobody would sign. He said, "Uh, Mm -hmm. it's just, you know, he said, you you lose everything, your right to everything. And basically, that's what the Ferris Doctrine lays out plainly so that you can never get that into court and have it exposed, the conditions under which you signed up for that service, and the fact that you are not even a U.S. citizen during that time. That blew me away. That more than anything, John, yeah. blew me away. Oh, yeah. And uh, But it, they said that it's think... like that because you you have to have total control over these men and women. You have to have total control. If you don't have total right. control, you, you can't succeed at anything. I don't believe that, but... A... I don't believe that either. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. I think if people knew about that, I know if I knew about that, I yes. I don't know if I would have joined. I don't know if I would have fully, if I really understood how much I belonged to the government, um, if I would have yes. joined. And in going off of that, you know, I was, because of my, you know, experience with my partner um, and the, and the trauma I, I went through from there, and then being re-victimized by the Navy and the Family Advocacy Program and my chain of command mm-hmm. for uh, retaliating against me, I was diagnosed with PTSD. And I've been well, no doubt. In, the, in the Persian yeah. Gulf, and it wasn't, you know, it's not a combat-related problem. I mean, I, I've, I've been through a lot, and, you know, it, what, what finally broke me was, was all of this, was, was you know yeah. using, coming after me and my son and my life my career and I love being in the military I absolutely love it and I don't want to leave I just uh-huh. I'm just trying to improve it 
that's all I'm doing. Right. I'm just doing my duty to point out, hey, there are some there are some serious holes in in this system. There are serious loopholes yes. where people can abuse it and take advantage of it. And, you know, like you were saying, I like your metaphor of, you know, like I'm a piece of property, like a tank. And I'm saying, well, yes. um, if you guys broke me, you broke the tank, what would you do if you actually broke yeah. a tank? You would fix it, right? Yeah. You would put your money where your mouth is. You would do an investigation. Why are these tanks breaking, right? Why are these service members killing yes. themselves? Why are they being hurt? Yes. And you would actually investigate and do something about it. The military's greatest asset is its personnel. So you have personnel yes. who have, who do have mental health issues, who do have, you know, these problems at home. And rather than do what they would do with, with a piece of equipment and investigate it and fix it, um, they try to sweep it under the rug. And I think, you know, like you said, if they did do that, then it would be exposed and people would know um, the, the right. actual culture of the military when it comes to sexual assault, sexual harassment, discrimination. And they're more worried about, you know, their public relations, their image, rather than getting to the root of the problem and fixing it. Yes. And that's the thing, too. Yeah. You know, and you're absolutely correct. We've dealt with a lot of veterans, and um, I met several of them out at the summit <clears throat> over a couple of years there. And the idea that when I look at the massive amount of funding the VA gets, I mean, it's just astronomical. The idea that the right. agency is that dysfunctional and is allowed to remain dysfunctional, and 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 yet they keep dumping more money in it. Nobody's held accountable. Uh, what they do in all these situations, if the heat gets to be too much, like on the top guy, rather than fire him, they let him resign. That way he can keep mm -hmm. all of his benefits. But if he gets prosecuted, like this chick you're talking about that, you know, did all this damage. If you were to prosecute her, she's still going to get paid. Did you know that even though she's a civilian? She's still going to get paid for the duration yeah. of that lawsuit. And then she's probably, if she's let go, which she probably will not be, but if she was, she'll get severance pay. And there again, we the public pay for all of this. But why would you put somebody in a position like that that is uh, just hardcore, I guess it's feminism, Nazi feminism. I'm a feminist to a point. But there reaches a point yeah. where you have to draw a line and say this is right and this is wrong. And sex doesn't determine determine what is right and wrong. But right. I, I have a history with, with the Marine Corps um, from my first husband. And there was a lot that went on back then. It was Vietnam era. And he came home with PTSD, and they didn't treat for it at all. Uh, they don't mm. even make a didn't make a pass at it like they do now. They oh yeah you got PTSD here take this handful of drugs, and but the me and several of the other Marine wives caught hell and I'm not kidding you uh, from these men who had PTSD and should not have remained in the service. So you know what I'm saying is there's another side to this, but there are always those instances like your case where you're trying to protect your small son and 
these women at this agency, this family advocacy program, instead of being concerned with him, are more concerned with which sex you are and whether or not they will support you based on that. They need to go. They need to go. Um, You can't do an adequate job with an attitude like that. Your case is a perfect example of that. You cannot do anything and succeed, you know, be successful in what you're doing, which ultimately is the protection of this child. They forfeited your son, as far as I can see, because she she was Uh, the one they pointed to. So, no, they shouldn't be in that position. Yeah, I thank you for saying that. It's true. And there was actually an investigation that showed where, you know, the investigator said that these people should not be in this position. That they, yeah. That when the investigator did go in, they were rude and defensive and angry at the investigator. They, they were upset that they were even being questioned, because there's so yes. many laws and protections for them where they're just not held accountable. And unfortunately, our military leaders, you know, they're focused on making sure that you know we're safe on a global level from from threats, you know, mostly foreign. Yeah. And they don't understand the nuances of, you know, what it's like to uh, experience discrimination or intimate partner violence or sexual assault. And so to have them be the judge, jury, and executioner and everyone, all the investigators be hired by the Navy and keep it, or in the military, really, keep it all within the military. We don't, you know, taxpayers, they don't, they don't get to see what's going on. They don't get the and and honestly, if if they were able to, then I think people would start to say, "Hey, what what's going on? Why is it so necessary to discriminate? Why do you why do you need to reserve the right to discriminate?" Which is what the Ferris Doctrine allows them to do. Military is not an yes. equal opportunity employer, and when you you know we're we're it's 2021. Uh, we're we're not. It's not World War One. We're not in the trenches. Um, a lot of us do office jobs. A lot of, you know, weapons are fired from a from a computer, right? Um, yes. W- there's no reason why uh, officers legally need to, or, or even c- civilian contractors legally need to be, well, we must be able to discriminate. We can't do our job unless, you know, we can discriminate yeah. against gender or say, we have to say the N-word in order to, in order to, uh, you know, get through this mission, how could you possibly give service members the right to defend themselves in court? We can't, we can't do that. The sky is falling. Right. And, and as yeah. I'm sure, you know, and I'm sure a lot of other whistleblowers know proving discrimination is extremely difficult. It is, it is very, very difficult to do that. A lot of times it's just a, he said, she said, so all I'm advocating mm-hmm. for uh, with my, with a bill that I wrote, uh, the Military Anti-Discrimination Act, which it's making its round uh, on a bunch of desks in Congress, is allowing service members that opportunity. It's not a handout. It's not nothing's guaranteed. It's just to get the opportunity to pay with their own money, an attorney, to go into court and say, "Hey, this is what happened. I want someone who's not in my chain of command to make the decision as to whether or not someone." whether or not I was discriminated against. And it's not just gender, you know, right. like, just like you, I consider myself a feminist too, to a point. And, and what it is, is just, I'm not, I'm not trying to take away anything from women. 
I, I'm just saying, look, the table is big enough for both of us. I've found that women are also really mistreated. Women are mistreated by the family advocacy program. And I tell men too, that, you know, we need women on our side. We need uh, our co, you know, we call them co-conspirators, right? Same with like, you know, um, other certain movements where, you know, we need, we need women. We need women to help us when men need to support each other. I will say women, in my opinion, are much better at supporting each other than men are. But, you know, part of it is society is telling us that, you know, it's not okay to speak out. You have to be manly. You have to, you know, shut up and do your job. And, you know, we don't, we don't, we're not able to, to come together as well. And I think that, conversation is shifting. I think the culture is shifting. And I really hope that the military someday realizes that giving us just the opportunity to go to court, the opportunity to subpoena a witness, um, the opportunity to subpoena evidence, right? So one of the things is the family advocacy program said, oh, he was, he never came to our office. And so I went to the oh, office, wow. I saw a security camera, and I said, hey, there's a security camera. You know, I want to see the footage. I want to show that I was here. And and I couldn't do it because I don't have that right because uh, I'm a service member. I don't have yeah. subpoena power. I don't have an attorney who can who can get that. That's all I'm trying to do. Right. You know, I'm just trying to prove my case. I'm trying to help my son. You know, because they didn't help me, the abuse got worse. They They did fail me and they failed my son. And... You know, that's all yeah. it is. We're just we just want a shot in court and the burden of proof is still extremely high. The military has the closest thing to unlimited money that any monster has. Yes. Beast. I mean, it is. So, you know, they'll have tons of attorneys to, to turn on people. And all I'm asking is for that for that shot, that that chance. Yeah. Well, you know, John, the thing is uh, in out in civilian courts, what they call family court. The same dynamic is at work, um, and usually, usually, it favors women. But there is a growing number of men who are reclaiming their rights, and but they always operate on, for one thing, a bunch of fictionalized situations and uh, false statements and everything else. And supposedly they're untouchable; you can't question them. But it's always driven by, not by what's best for the children. But by right. driving this thing, the make, creating this divide, this wedge, and pitting people against each other, which essentially they've done in your case. Um, like I say, to, yeah. in everything I read on this, there seems to be no consideration for your son. He's simply a pawn right. and gets batted back and forth. And that is unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't care whether you stand up and pee or you sit down. If there's a child involved, that child comes first and let the chips fall where they may. But see, they don't right. do it. They yeah. weaponize those kids and they just bat them back and forth between the parents, which is what's happened here. Now, if your wife has a history of you know, addiction abuse of any kind, alcohol, drugs, whatever it is, that would make her suspect right off the bat, but apparently not with this crew you were trying to work with and the idea that they lied about all these things saying you had never been there uh you know and then withholding evidence you know that could have helped prove what you were saying and from what i read you never came from the aspect of attacking the ex-wife or soon-to-be ex-wife whatever she is it was for protection for your son 
always you put your son right. first. And they they did the exact opposite. They put her first and shoved your son aside. Right. Yeah. She's a she's a civilian, so there's nothing they could do to her. I I repeatedly said I'm not asking you to to do anything to her. I needed help. I wanted to talk to somebody about what I was going through, and they said, Oh no, you're a man. You can't go to our our victim discussions. You know, you can go into what what's called a cool down closet. I said, please tell me what that is. And they said, well, women and children get to go into the nice shelter where there's a backyard. They even allow dogs to go into the shelter. Everyone gets their own room. There's security there. But men go to a little closet where they cool down like a caged lion who's about to be fed. Because, you know, that's all they see us as. They see us as just these, these monsters. And you know, I, I when I looked that up and I saw that they they accept pets, I thought to myself, wow, dogs have more rights as victims than men do in the military. Yeah. I mean, that is, how wow. are we okay with that? And you yeah. know, I've, I've reached out to, to Congress, um, and so far they've been relying way too much on military leaders to tell them what to do. And what I'm trying to say to them is, look, they're not going to find themselves guilty. They are right. so scared. They, the military is so scared of having service members have the right to go to court. They don't want the Ferris Doctrine touched. They don't want it even chipped away at. They are so scared that if there is actual consequences to their discriminatory behavior that, you know, the sky will fall and America will collapse. You know, (laughs) I I don't know. I don't know what they think, or we're going to start, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to march in a straight line anymore. Or, you know, I I don't understand. Mm -hmm. Um, It's, it's the same kind of fear mongering that they did when, they allowed African-Americans to serve when they allowed women to yes. finally serve, when they allowed LGBTQ mm-hmm. to serve openly. You know, these are all just people who are willing to lay down their lives for their country. We need to get rid of this right to discriminate against them and hold people accountable for their actions. It sounds like a wild concept, I know, but I think we can walk and chew gum at the same time and it's about time yeah. we give our service members the opportunity, just the chance, get an attorney just like everyone else has the right to. And that's how we'll improve. That's how we'll improve as a military. Yeah. Once it's once One we can the, oh, go, go to court and people can hear about ahead, it, Jeff. and yeah, the, I, it's yeah. just basically more sunlight on it and people will understand and that's how we'll fix it. Well, you know, you talk about, you know, the difficulties various groups, including women, had to serve in the military. I remember when the Iraq war first started up and a lot of women signed up and they wanted to go into combat. I have no idea why, but they did. And particularly from women, I heard this comment, would you want her in a foxhole with your husband? Now, my thoughts immediately, John, jumped to, if I'm in a foxhole, that means somebody's firing at me. The last thing on my mind is sex. Uh, right. what, what are you thinking here? 
And the same thing yeah, about gays. Would you, want, would you would you want to – what do you think in the middle of everything they're going to lay their gun down and run over and try and do you? No. Uh, the, the excuses people come up for this is just absolutely so mind-blowing in its stupidity that, you know, you wonder how anybody can grab onto it. But this idea that you sign up to serve this country and are not served yourself – in honor of that on, on any level, in any capacity, but I swear the military has got to be one of the worst, maybe second only to the USDA and the VA itself. Um, it's just, it's a disgrace. It's an absolute disgrace. Right. And when we, I say what's angering me about this story is at no time did these people who were supposed to be there to help you at no time did they put your child first. Right. It was keeping this divide right. they, going, and yeah, go ahead. Yeah, they had a sweet, um, a sweet federal job um, where yeah. they—that's they, all they cared about. They just wanted to um, protect themselves. And you know what's interesting is I've had uh, men, I've had women victims come forward saying that the family advocacy program uh, made things worse, and then I've also had former yes. FAP employees hear about what I've been doing and coming forward and telling me that they were trained to find anyone, they can, they can find anyone guilty or anyone innocent. And, and it's something that it's really hard to hear because, and and some of them actually were are whistleblowers themselves. And so they Mm -hmm. came and they're like, look, you're not, you're not, you're not crazy. Like we are trained to do this. One of, one of them, came to me saying that the director of the family advocacy program uh, in Alabama was having an affair and wanted to uh, divorce her husband and get everything from him. And so she went to the FAP caseworker and said, Hey, I need you to find my husband guilty of sexual assault so that the divorce can go a lot easier. Right. And so he quit, Uh he quit that day and and he's, he, he filed a whistleblower complaint, and, you know, when he heard about what I was going through, he reached out and told me this story. And I've had other women, um, too, who said, look, I'm aware of that Pearl Harbor family advocacy program and what a toxic environment it is and how unprofessional they are, how, how poorly run it is by Sally Younger and Don Ogden. Um, and I totally believe that the caseworkers, there are three caseworkers who, you know, discriminated against me. It was Marissa Ayala Garcia, who I, I, I showed, I showed you some of uh, her taped phone calls of her saying, you know, we don't allow men. I don't know if you heard that one or not, but uh, yeah. it was, it was Marissa Ayala Garcia, Jennifer Yannick and BJ Corsi who, you know, they they were not they were not touched even though an investigation said that they should not be working there. Um, they continue to to carry on as if nothing happened, and it's really so. Sad. They did investigate them. They did investigate them, didn't they? Um, yes and no. That's a really good question. So the investigation the investigative process is what is is screwed up, which is why I wrote that bill, the Military Anti-Discrimination Act, because that's what the military is not good at doing. 
So they assigned uh-huh. when I filed my discrimination complaint saying, "Hey, this IDC process um, and my time with FAP, they discriminated against me." They assigned an officer who was in the room at the IDC working with Don Ogden, and he had no authority to do this investigation. He had no authority to do this determination. He did it anyways. And at no point did he recuse himself and say, hey, this is a conflict of interest. I was a voting member of this IDC. Of course he's going to find that the IDC process was on the up and up. And I, I've determined that I'm innocent. Yeah. And, uh, you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, how ridiculous <laughs> is that? And so I, I pointed yeah. this out to people and, he, you know, he's a commander and, you know, God forbid, you know, a commander does anything wrong. And again, it's, it's yeah. There's this environment of um, what is right is not important. It's all about who is right. You know, if if it's yes. a if it's a commander doing it, well, then it must be right. You know, even if I point <laughs> out the policy, if I point out the law, none of that matters. Well, we don't want to we don't want to step on this commander's toes. And again, going to court will in not totally, but will somewhat equalize us. You know, there's no, we don't wear our uniforms in family court. You know, we go to family court and you have a defendant, you have a plaintiff, you have witnesses and everyone gets their equal time. You know, they can, they go under oath, they have to say the truth. And the judge is not someone in the military, right? Um, Right. And so that's what, that's all I'm advocating for is, hey, we should be able to go where it's a little bit more fair playing ground where the, they're not tipping the scale where it's all these officer buddies and, you know, people who are, are so close to the case that they cannot be objective. And so right now right. my case is at, it's in Washington, D.C. So I, mm-hmm. I appealed saying, hey, this commander who found himself and his FAP colleagues innocent um, should never have made this determination um, and you know, they, they, of course they, they, uh, threatened me, uh, for doing that. I had trash poured on my desk. I had the power cords taken oh, out wow. of my computer. I was banned from showing up to work. I couldn't even show up to work without written permission from the commanding officer, which is absolutely Oh my insane. God. Um, and I was, I, because I was saying this, co- this commander screwed up, he didn't follow the policies. Uh, They don't like that. They do not like, you know, hearing what is right. All they care about is who is right. And because I'm just a petty officer, E6, um, how dare I, um, you know, point out, point out that the rubies in the crown are not uh, as sparkly as they say they are. Yeah. And so that's where, well, you know, the thing is, I'm trying to go through Congress to get this bill passed. You know, the, this thing of self-policing, we see this with the attorneys, you know, the bar associations. We see it with police departments. We see it with various federal agencies, self-policing. Uh, we'll take care of it because the public couldn't possibly, <coughs> excuse me, couldn't possibly understand, you know, because we're so special. And all self-policing is is a circling of the wagons, and it is the actual uh, – certified protection racket and that's all they exist for is to make sure nothing gets past them 
um, everything is, it, it doesn't matter. It's no big deal. It didn't happen. Uh, well, we looked into it, and we didn't find anything wrong. And it, then they go after the person who found the complaint or did whatever. Uh, and then there's people who are always covetous of power. You know, if you've got power, right. uh, it's worth more in the bank than money. And so they want to keep that. So for to point out that somebody up above you didn't do what he was supposed to do, you attacked his power base. That's the way he says right. it. And, you know, and so he's he's not going to let that happen. Um, like I say, what really galls me that at no time was your son ever the first priority. It was, boy, I don't know. I want to know how these women still have a job. I, I, I just do not either. know how these women. Yeah, <laughs> they should this, this isn't making guy, any sense. The guy who wrote that letter uh, saying that I was guilty of abuse, his name is Ed Cannon. You know, I, I'm calling for his for his firing and his resignation as well. There's yes. zero. There's been zero repercussions. There's a human being that he affected. He oh. hurt me so much. I've. I'll be honest with you, Marty. I've never. I've never had any suicidal ideations, but when I read that letter that said, we found John Strimmel guilty of child abuse, I did not want to be alive. I was... I, was, I, yeah, I can understand I that. I couldn't believe my eyes. And, you know, and what does my commanding officer say? He goes, well, I told you not to mess with FAP. They can destroy you. Don't mess with these people. I told you. That's all he says is, I told you so. Oh, my and it's now it's your problem. And and he was right. It is my problem. I am on my own. I'm not getting the support from my chain of command. And I can't even sue this guy. And yet that letter was taken to family court and her attorney literally waved it around. And these family court judges should not accept any letter from the family advocacy program. But they do all the time. How do I know that? I'm yeah. a part-time paralegal. I worked at a family law firm. And when we had clients who were in the military or dependents of military, they would come in and, and I would say, okay, give me your evidence so we can go to divorce court. And if they went to FAP, uh, I, 100% of the time they had the letter from FAP saying this guy was guilty of domestic violence or this guy was innocent or she was innocent or she was guilty, whatever it was. And technically that's hearsay. That letter should not yes. be admitted into court unless the military people who voted on that crime come in and say how they voted. But yeah. they don't do that. There's, it's so difficult to get these people to come into family court and talk about you know, their process and what they did. And it, it hurts. It, it destroys families. It breaks people up. And so some people yeah. say, well, the, fam the family court should just not accept the family advocacy program letters. And although that's true, I'm trying to go to the root cause, which is the family advocacy program issuing these letters saying that someone met criteria for a crime. They try to say, well, we don't say guilty or innocent. We say they've met criteria. And I said, you know, really, yes. if someone were to read a letter that says this guy met criteria for murder – what do you think that means? Someone's going to read that and go, well, this guy probably murdered someone, right? Especially if it has the Navy yeah. stamp of a, the Navy seal at the top of the letter and it's all official looking. Of course they're going to think they're guilty. And so they go into this, they go into the courtroom with this, with this letter 
from the family advocacy program, none of those employees um, come in and testify and say, yes, this is the evidence that we looked at because they don't look at all the evidence. And so, no. so yeah, it destroys, it destroys people's lives. And so, you know, they're, they're all trying to just protect their jobs. They don't care about me. They don't care yep. about my son. They don't care about what we've been through. And, and yeah, it's a problem. And so, um, you know, I've got this website, the military anti-discrimination act.com where people want to go and sign the petition that supports this, okay. or if anyone wants to call their congressperson or senator, um, I, I had the pleasure of speaking with uh, my local senators and congresspeople actually just yesterday on a Zoom call, uh, talking about it, and it 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 goes it's going off very well. Again, it's not just for men; Good. it's for women. It's not yes. just it's not just gender; it's religious um, protections. You know, you can't. It's it's all kinds yeah. of discrimination that's under you know that everyone else has. Um, and we're just yes. we're just saying, hey, it's time that the military has these protections. That's all. Okay, we've got about two minutes left here, John. Um, I want to thank you for coming on, and this has been uh, one of the things I noticed about this family adequacy program advocacy program is they say they don't investigate; they simply assess, and apparently they pick and choose yeah. what they assess. And that, but they pass on their decrees as if they were and had done an investigation, which they don't do. But anyway, right. uh, I want to thank you for coming on. I want to follow up with you on this. Um, stay in touch with me and let me know what's happening because I, I do want to do a follow-up show on this and see where you're at, how things are coming along. Um, okay. And the best to your little son. And, uh, oh, my. Uh <laughs> Again, everyone, Thanks, these shows are brought to you. Well, we'll have you back. Um, these right. shows are brought to you in coordination with Marcel Reed and the Whistleblower Summit. It'll be July 29th through 31st this year, and it will be online video again, thanks to the faked up virus. And whatever you do, don't take that shot. But that's just my thought and opinion. Of course, I don't wear a mask either. You can't make me put one on. But. <laughs> That's just the way. That's nothing but obedience training. Um, And I'm not a very obedient person. That's just the way it is. Anyway, we'll be back tomorrow night within the mix with me and Kaz. And we're hoping to be able to stay on air. Last week, we got bounced two minutes into the show. Got cut off totally. Got wiped out. That seems to be happening to us a lot lately. And um, a lot of interference. I get bounced out of my own show. But anyway, I come right back. And... Like I say, this was our 1,611th broadcast, and we're going to keep rolling. Everybody have a good evening. John, thank you for being our guest and telling your story. And we will see you next Thursday for another edition of Whistleblowers. Good night, everyone. Thanks, Marty. Good night.